When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Chicago, two comedian skeptics named Andy and Art were mysteriously abducted by the illusionary mastermind and conspiracy theorist known only as Mr. Mr. Bunker. Bunker. The following serves as a record of Bunker's attempt to convince non-believers of the truth about conspiracies and paranormal activity. Andy and Art give an uninterrupted presentation and verdict on the plausibility of these offbeat topics, delivering what they call the, the whole enchilada. Will Mr. Bunker convince these two skeptics any of this is real? Will it convince you? Welcome to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Our Stone. With me, as always, is uh, your co-host, Andy Hot. Oh, Bunk Funkers, you get your podcast wit. That means wit me and Art. <laughs> Yo, Bunk Funkers, you got to know how to order your podcast. When you show up in line, you got to know immediately, right off the bat. Do you want your podcast with or without onions? The po- now, regardless of your selection, the podcast always smells like onions. <laughs> That's right. Next, you need to choose your cheese. Do you want whiz? Do you want provolone? Do you want American cheese? Do you want uh, mozzarella? I got some hand-pulled mozzarella right here for you. You know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> hand-pulled mozzarella. And lastly, you need to choose if you want peppers on that podcast. <laughs> I like with um, Andy. Uh, why did we just go through that lengthy expl- explanation on how to properly order a Mister Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast? Jeez, I wish I knew. A hot our, debate. I I wish I knew it. It really has no bearing on anything other than uh, because <laughs> you, the. Bunkfuckers don't order anything. I mean, we just give them. It's like they walk into a restaurant and we just serve them uh, and they can choose to eat or walk away. Um, But I think uh, what you're really getting at here is that we were doing a Philadelphia accent and I think uh, culturally perfect and 100% accurate to Philadelphia. I mean, if anybody from (laughs) Philadelphia, I mean, feel free to critique us, but I think that was beyond critique. Um, And... The reason that we're doing that is because today's topic is called the Philadelphia Experiment. Oh, that's right, Andy. And uh, yeah, we're not serving up cheesesteaks, but we're serving up the whole enchilada on the Philadelphia Experiment. <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> Love Philadelphia. Uh, great city. Uh, um, 
great sports teams. Yeah, we're we're going over the Philadelphia experiment, and uh, this has got you know it it's it's a hey it's a uh, it's a it's a quick one. It's not the most uh, you know. There's not as much. Let's just say on this. This week's enchilada cheesesteak, there's not as much steak as you would think. You you might be going to, you know, normally when you come to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast for your uh, your uh, whole enchilada steak, you know, you're getting a full, like, tons of overflowing with steak. This one, you're watching, we're watching our calories on this one, let's just say. Right, right. This is, uh, this is the uh, healthy choice. Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy <laughs> Time podcast. Um, the lean cuisine, Mr. <laughs> Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. Yeah. Um, look, you're you're going to get full. Are you going to be satisfied? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, you will. You always will be. Um, well, here's the thing, though. We know you bunk bunkers are hungry, so if you can't wait in line, you know, you can order ahead, and you can look in the show notes Look in the description. In the show notes, there's a timestamp, and you can skip right ahead to when the Philadelphia experiment starts. It's got, uh, you know, it's a military experiment. There's, uh, hey, maybe even uh, King of the Eggheads Albert Einstein shows up. Um, <laughs> Ultimate egghead. Stuff. Ultimate egghead. A uh, weird book that possibly involves Mr. Bunker himself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, a <laughs> lot of wild stuff here. But uh, so go ahead, look for that timestamp. Skip right ahead to when the um, research begins. But first, Andy and I need to talk about where in the world is Mister Bunker? Where in the world is Mister Bunker? So, uh, bunk funkers. I mean, by this point, you know, Art and I are not together. We are physically separated uh, because of coronavirus. And we've been in That's quarantine. Right. And, and also we're divorced. We also, our divorce is finally final. Uh, <laughs> Art got the gold mine and yep. I got the shaft. And <laughs> Bungfunkers, um, we've been separated for three months now and a while. It feels like forever. I don't know how long it's been. It's been a while. But the point is, uh, we're separated and we haven't seen Mr. Bunker uh, for however long uh but every week he keeps us posted on his travelings uh because during uh the coronavirus pandemic he has been traveling the globe and beyond um after purposefully infecting himself with the virus early on uh in order to develop immunity so he's been living it up uh he made his way into uh lots of empty cities uh while things were locked down and he continues his travels now even as uh there's reopening in the United States and this week was no different uh we got a postcard from Mr. Bunker and every week he sends a postcard with a picture of himself on the front to help yeah. us understand what he's up to and this week was was no different we we got a postcard uh with Mr. Bunker uh, dressed up like Benjamin Franklin, um, one of the, for those not familiar, Benjamin Franklin was a uh, a statesman, uh, a publisher, uh, and an important figure in the early history of the United States of America. And also- Yeah, he was a founding father. He's your daddy. Yeah, he is all of our father's. 
if you're American. Uh, his face adorns the $100 bill. And, and what a face. He's a hunk. He's a hunk. He was a uh, known... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, he was known for being promiscuous. That's right. Um, He's a Casanova type. A Casanova type, yeah. And um, so Mr. Bunker obviously embodies all of those qualities so he's dressed like uh like Mr. Benjamin Franklin himself clearly in Philadelphia he's standing next to the Liberty Bell and yes. uh he's just he's eating a cheesesteak he's covered in cheese whiz uh the whole oh, front that, of his body like, just yeah. dripping there's a <laughs> there's a small puddle on the ground beneath him of cheese whiz uh it's disgusting and beautiful all at the same time Mr. Bunker writes on the back of the postcard that uh, he's he's dressed up as he's traveled to Philadelphia. Uh, he wants us to research the Philadelphia experiment. He was inspired and he's dressed up as Ben Franklin and he's he's trying to give street tours to tourists of the real Philadelphia. Uh, that's, that's right his version of Philadelphia. And so what he's doing is he's actually trying to intercept uh, tour goers from other walking tours in the city and then take them on his tour of Philadelphia. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so these people are trying to get, like, you know, a classic walking tour of the history of a city where you get some person, (laughs) usually in some colored polo, and probably, like, a megaphone or something, and they're, like, walking through the streets, and he'll just, like... Tag along on the back, eating a cheesesteak. And she'd be like, that's not how it happened. Yeah, he's 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 disruptive. Um he's he's spouting conspiracy theories at every point, uh, trying yeah. to convince people that that's not really what happened. And uh then he's offering to take people on a real tour of the city and you show know, them like, the real Philadelphia. Yeah. Famously, he's saying that the Liberty Bell is actually a, uh, a a alien spacecraft from Zeta Reticuli that has been, uh, you know, like molded in uh, brass or whatever the fuck the Liberty Bell is made out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, famously, he's saying that uh, uh, <laughs> that you know that the founding fathers at the the Continental Congress and whatnot when they met and wrote the fucking Declaration of Independence. Was uh, it was actually reptilians, you mm-hmm. know, they were all reptilians, and that's why they wear those powdered wigs and those ridiculous yeah. clothes. There's all there's, of course, that 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 you know, theory that under Independence Hall is a is a vast reptilian bunker where all of the founding fathers that we know today uh, stashed their you know, skins away at night before appearing in public. Um, yep. There's, there's, and obviously... honestly, a big part of the tour is also judging which t- cheesesteak place is the best, which right. has nothing to. Re- I mean, I guess in a way, it's part of the history of Philadelphia, but uh, it, it's not right. really it's like not... you don't really think of it as yeah, historical. But he, I <laughs> but mean, it's very big. Every for every tour ends up at Tony Luke's and Pat's and Gino's, and. You know, it's just him getting more sandwiches. Like, he doesn't... It's not... If you want to taste one, you have to buy it yourself. He doesn't have a relationship with the proprietors of these establishments. 
And then he's just got cheesesteak in his pocket all day long. He literally wrote that he keeps a cheesesteak in his pocket. Yeah. I mean, he's got a problem. He's addicted to cheesesteaks. Yeah. He wrote that he was, uh, he's really enjoying, he's enjoying the colonial wear that he has to wear yeah. when he's dressed yeah. up as Ben Franklin because there's so many pockets. You know, he's got like a breast pocket, he's got two pockets, and he's got back pockets and coat pockets. Those uh, yeah. tri tricone hats. There's room to hold a cheesesteak in, yeah. in them as well, and uh, he's yeah. loving it. He says he might. There's never a cheesesteak in me, Nickers. You know, I don't think we talk <laughs> enough about what accents must have been like. You th- I bet Ben Franklin had a had an English accent. They uh, people don't think people don't talk about that a lot, but I bet they did. Yeah, it was a. Uh, no, yeah, it was a uh, it was a weird mixture of like an English accent that I think morphed. It was like half English, half uh, <laughs> American. Oh, I got a cheesesteak. But as in we my all knickers. know, the most accurate uh, colonial. Oh, <laughs> the most accurate colonial movie <laughs> of all time is, of course, Mel Gibson's The Patriot, and uh, if that film taught us anything it's that uh you know revolutionary uh guerrilla yeah. warriors i guess all sounded like Mel yeah i did uh remember reading once that that was the most historically accurate film ever made yes that's true um well that was uh that's where in the world is mr bunker uh he's in Philadelphia, which is where we're headed living it up who knows um before we get to our uh, to our episode topic, we're actually going to debut a new segment, Andy. A new segment. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's called uh, the Bunker Alarm, and uh, we thought that it was it was about time that we start giving back or shouting out some of our you know loyal bunk funkers. I think yeah. they deserve to have the alarm bell rung for them. Absolutely. And uh, so each week uh, or every week that we can or we remember to do it, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we're going to sound the bunker alarm for one lucky bunk funker who either writes in and sends us a nice message or, you know, uh, messages us on social media or whatever. Um, so this week we the bunker alarm is uh, what 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 bunker alarm do we want to sound here, Andy? Because we got we got a lot of different bunker alarms to choose from. Um, I think uh, go with like a classic wee woo. Yeah, yeah, let's do a wee woo. Wee woo wee woo wee woo wee woo wee woo wee woo wee woo. How long do we go? I don't know. I started a little yeah. late. I didn't, uh, you know, this is the this first is, time working out the bugs, but this will get, this will get, this will get more crisp like everything else in the podcast. Oh, for <laughs> sure. And uh, we're going to shout, we're, we're, we're sounding the bunker alarm for an OG bunk funker this week. Uh, true. A, uh, a follower by the name of Cody and Cody has sent in plenty of very funny tweets mm-hmm. to us and has responded to a lot of different things. And, um, uh, so, Cody, thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much for uh, being an OG bunk funker and for putting up with our uh, Warhammer 40k jokes that we make <laughs> sometimes at your expense. It's all in good fun, but we appreciate you, and that's why we're sounding the bunker alarm for you. So, wee woo, 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 wee woo,
Cody, we love you. <laughs> All righty. Hey, speaking of love, Andy, why don't we travel to the city of brotherly mm-hmm. love? Uh, love incest. Is Bluff, known yeah. as. Yes. Philos, which is the Greek word for familial love, brotherly love, mm, yeah. Andy, as opposed to eros or agape. Right. Agape being unconditional love, eros being erotic You're love, like sex, right. Andy. Sexy love. But there's no sex in this story. In fact, I'm pretty sure everybody involved in it is a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Including us. Yeah, oh, wait, that's right. No. We're virgins. <laughs> Just kidding. We're chads. Just kidding. Um, no, we're going to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, and we're going to talk about the Philadelphia exper- experiment. Um, it's a uh, I don't know I think it'll surprise you let's just say that you're gonna be surprised you're gonna yeah you'll be shocked Uh, yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah you might uh, you might disappear yeah yeah you might uh, let's just say you might become one with something you don't want to become one with oh Well, you're going to become one with the whole enchilada on the <laughs> Philadelphia experiment right here, right now, on Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast Enchilada. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, home of cheesesteaks, Rocky Balboa, and countless level-headed sports fans. But did you know, Andy, that it is also home to one of the most covered government conspiracy theories? Well, you probably do now, uh, because you read the script. In the middle of World War II, the U.S. government was allegedly looking to one-up the Germans, whose U-boats were absolutely creaming. The Allied naval forces, much like world-famous Philadelphia cream cheese. And much like how Philadelphia was the first temporary capital of our new nation, our new experiment, this experiment was conducted in the Philadelphia Naval Yard. They contacted not one of Philadelphia's most famous inventors and one of this country's founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, but instead allegedly sought the help of Albert Einstein... But this experiment wouldn't be without its fatalities, much like how Philadelphia's Germantown's Grunglethorpe, occupied by the British during the Revolutionary War, still shows the blood where General Agnew uh, died from a sniper's bullet on the living room floor. That's a real fact about Philadelphia. Go to Philadelphia and check out this, like, 300-year-old bloodstain where some revolutionary general got domed. (laughs) Uh, All right. Andy, do you think we covered enough neat facts about Philadelphia so that their rabid fans are happy? You know, Art, I think we hit the contrite, overused tropes as well as being uh, obscure history facts, which is which is really our sweet spot. That's true. That is us in a nutshell. Uh, so the Philadelphia experiment in a uh, nutshell is rather simple in and of itself, but it kind of unravels into a uh, a weird little series of events, I guess you could say. Around October 28th, or in some sources, late summer of 1943, the USS Eldridge, a uh, destroyer DE-173 class ship, it's a big ship, uh, sat in Philadelphia's Naval Yard, when suddenly 
Witnesses claim it starts to glow in eerie green color and then disappears. Other witnesses claim to see the ship appear 200 miles away in Norfolk, Virginia. And then, as mysteriously as it appeared there, it disappeared and teleported back to Philadelphia. This was no accident, however. This was an experiment conducted in secret by the U.S. Navy to attempt to create either some kind of cloaking device or teleportation device. When the ship returned to Philadelphia, witnesses say some crew members had completely vanished. A barkeep at a local tavern recalls serving two sailors from the Eldridge when they mysteriously vanished, while some others were driven completely insane. And still, some had mysterious, unexplainable illnesses. But worst of all, others were fused into the walls and hull of the ship, like some kind of Schippenstein's monster. Oh, uh, kind of like that, uh, oh, what's the name Rouge from those X-Men's comics you kids love so much? That's it, yeah. That's it. Now, some sources say the Navy, uh, during this wild teleportation event, was able to communicate with extraterrestrial civilizations as if they passed through some kind of wormhole or dimension before reappearing 200 miles away from their origin. And some witnesses say that several large generators were placed aboard the Eldridge, including four transmitters and a special transmitter on its antenna. So if this was a tippy-top secret experiment, how did we find out about it? Well, a little later, the Office of Naval Research, or ONR, received a package in the mail. It was a copy of M.K. Jessup's The Case for the UFO, a book written in 1955 that explored all manners of the UFO phenomenon. However, scrawled in the margins of this copy are notes written with three different color pens, and they seem to be written in the voice of three different people making comments on Jessup's writing. There was Jemmy, purple, Mr. A, green, and Mr. B, blue. Um, what? Could this mysterious Mr. B be the titular Mr. Bunker? Holy shit, Andy. This is one mega bomb being dropped right now. Yeah, bigger than the bomb I dropped in the toilet at the public library after eating a 10-inch meatball hoagie with a caramel cheesecake cream smoothie at Wawa's. Oh, I ate the gobbler with some pretzels and a water ice, and then I shat myself at the Eagles game. Nobody noticed. My stinky dookie could have played better than Carson Wentz, though. <laughs> but hey, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, though, so a bunch of guys took me down to the forest to wash my shit ass in the creek. <laughs> Why didn't they take you down to the shore? Or Cheeky's and Pete's restaurant? They got a nice bat room. Or just go across the street to a spigot? Ah, uh, no can do. I had jury duty. In my pants. <laughs> oh, oh God, Art. We got caught in a Philly buster. That was wild. Oh, my God. We almost forgot that Mr. Bunker may have been one of the annotators of this bizarre notes found in this copy of M.K. Jessup's The Case for the UFO. Let's not forget about that. So, anywho, as we said, the handwritten notes in the margin would, in some cases, speak to each other. For example, early in the book, the book's author, Jessup, is describing how one arrogant scientist can nullify the paranormal sightings of thousands of people, which he describes as a kind of, quote, intellectual dictatorship. 
To which the note taker writes, uh, this is as Mr. B, quote, such contempt for those badly frightened or strictly orthodox namby-pamby scientists. The shade of Galileo walks again in the name of better science. Will he arouse and enlighten as before? End quote. Mr. A replies, quote, no, my twin, he walks through clouds, end quote. And uh, in many others, the author mentions Einstein's unified field theory and the Philadelphia experiment, which, you know, is ultimately what got the Office of Naval Research interested in kind of how we know about the Philadelphia experiment today. So, for example, one note reads, uh, and there's there's plenty of also, I, I just want to reiterate, plenty of spelling mistakes and varying levels of like mm-hmm. capitalization and such and lots of underlining. So Einstein's theory of unified field throughout all space and atmosphere was so well proven that upon realizing man's misanthropic emotionally emotion emotionality, he withdrew it. 1927. And another reads I am not adverse to saying that a force field can make a man to fly, for I have seen it done, and I know the cause of this flight, and am not disturbed. Paris Expedition, 1951. Scientists from Paris University demonstrated this. An AP fought was sent, uh, uh, photo was sent to the U.S. showing this action. U.S. Navy's force field experiments, 1943, October, produced invisibility of crew and ship. Fearsome results, so terrifying as to, fortunately, halt further research. Those were all in caps. That's why I was reading it like that. The annotated version of this book is uh, linked in our show notes if you're interested in reading the whole thing. And uh, it's, it's kind of a wild ride. In fact, the Vero uh, or Varro Manufacturing Company of Garland, Texas, which was a military contractor, privately reprinted the annotated text of Jessup's book, reportedly producing 127 copies, which quickly became collector's items. But hey, what just the heck was this Einstein's unified field theory? Oh boy, listen, uh, this is for mega super duper eggheads, uh, okay, but... The unified field theory is essentially an attempt to describe all fundamental forces and the relationships between elementary particles in terms of a single theoretical framework. Um, Like in Lord of the Rings, how there's one ring to rule them all, this one physics theme to rule them all. In essence, uh, a UFT, a unified field theory, would help a lot of eggheads essentially tackle any physics-related problem imaginable. Now, Einstein is most famous for being, but also a hilarious Chad prankster. So, as far as Mr. Bunker's conspiracy time is concerned, he's neutral. But he came up with a field theory of gravitation and attempted to construct a unified field theory combining things like electromagnetism and gravity as different aspects of a single field. But he was never able to, and neither has anyone else. Well, allegedly, I guess, because this mysterious author claims he did actually finish it. But who was this annotator? Well... Whoever they were, the annotator of the book seemed to be incredibly knowledgeable about UFO technology, how it functioned, their origins, and the works of Einstein and such. Thus, the uh, Office of Naval Research, ONR, specifically 
the then commander, George W. Hoover, they uh, they went and asked M.K. Jessup if he sent the book to them or if he knew anything about this mysterious annotator. Jessup said, nah, dude, I don't know anything about them. But he had been receiving letters with similar handwriting and in a similar subject matter. He actually, in fact, he actually have received over 50 letters with similar handwriting and pertaining to similar subject matter. Jessup told the ONR that he believed whomever wrote these letters probably also wrote the notes. And the person who wrote those letters was a man named Carlos Miguel Allende. Allende wasn't easy to track down. But let's jump off the official timeline of this story and talk a little bit about some of the things he claimed later on when he finally did come out of hiding. He claims he was at the Philadelphia Naval Yard when the USS Eldridge disappeared and that he got it that he himself got shocked when he touched the USS Eldridge. Now, the only proof Allende could provide for his claims was a list of a few names of people who were with him aboard the Matson Lines Liberty ship, the SS Andrew Furuseth, but he recalled no exact dates. Allende also claims Einstein was there watching the Eldridge and saw Allende get shocked by the ship. Einstein saw that Allende knew too much, so he met with him privately for a debriefing. Now, Allende and Einstein allegedly became friends, and Allende became sort of a student of Einstein's. Einstein opened his big old egghead brain of his and showed Allende alien propulsion tech, how to travel at four times the speed of light, teleportation, invisibility, and probably, honestly, Einstein showed him his massive hog. I mean, come on, right? That's where that's where this is heading, right? Oh, wrong, Andy. It, what? Because... Well, here's the thing with the Philadelphia experiment. It all stems from one guy, Carlos Miguel Allende. If that is your real name, which it's not. No, really, it's not his real name. A plethora of skeptics have dug into this at the time of this recording, a 70-ish year old story. Uh, Some even went as far to find Allende, quote unquote, family and interview them about him. Turns out his real name is Carl Meredith Allen. And Carl has always been a bit of a outcast slash oddball in his family. He's uh, he's very much a drifter. And the return addresses on his letters would frequently bounce back or change location. You know, one time he's the return address is Minneapolis. Others, it's Texas. Sometimes it's Mexico. Now, we jumped from the official timeline because Carl disappeared for a while in the 60s. Or I should say until the 60s, rather. But uh, in the summer of 1969, sorry, my mistake. Those were the best days of my life. Oh, yeah. In the summer of 69. Oh, yeah. I love that song. Anywho, (laughs) that's when... Carl reappeared and dropped by the Tucson office of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, APRO. And it's apropos because he uh, confessed the whole thing. The entire Philadelphia experiment and Einstein's UFT was a hoax. He didn't make any word on Einstein's UTI, though. But he later recanted his confession. So we're back to square one. (laughs) Carl has made some appearances at various paranormal conferences, but was always the drifter type. 
As we stated, one skeptic even traveled to his family home to investigate all this. In July 1979, researcher Robert A. Gorman, whose hometown happened to be New Kensington, Pennsylvania, discovered that one of his neighbors, 70-year-old Harold Allen, was in fact Carl's father. From Gorman's interview, uh, we learned the following about Carl. He was born on May 3rd. 31st, 1925, in Springdale, Pennsylvania, uh, that despite Carl's claims otherwise, he had no gypsy blood whatsoever. Uh, he had three brothers, Frank, Donald, and Randolph, and one sister, Sarah. Although Carl was brilliant in school, he never really used his mind and never worked very hard at anything except what his brothers describe as leg-pulling. Gorman concluded, quote, Carl Meredith Allen is an outcast by his own choice. He has nothing to show for himself but his marvelous tale of a disappearing ship and the legendary book he claims he co-authored, end quote. Damn. <laughs> There's also a few discrepancies with uh, where the ships actually were in this story. In fact, in a way, this shows how much of an impact the Philadelphia experiment kind of had because the U.S. Navy Historical Center actually responded to this story with a statement um, verifying when and where the ships were docked. So according to the deck log and the war diary for the USS Eldridge, it was commissioned on August 27th, 1943 through December 1943. And it never once was docked in Philadelphia. <laughs> the Eldridge remained in New York, uh, traveled to Bermuda for training and sea trials, then went back to New York for a while. It did go to Norfolk, Virginia, eventually, after escorting some ships to Casablanca. But uh, according to the Navy, this is a New York ship through and through, and uh, that's really got a sting for some Philly fans out there. Yeah, this is, uh, this is probably about as uh, hard to swallow as when... Uh the Patriots beat the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Or, well, you get the idea. Um, these, yeah, that, that about covers it. These, these Philadelphians were paved. Um, so what about the SS Andrew Furuseth, the merchant marine ship that Carl Allen and other witnesses were supposedly on that saw the Eldridge teleporting to Norfolk Harbor and out? Norfolk, oh man, I can't say that, Norfolk Harbor and out. Well, the Furuseth was in Norfolk indeed. However, it left Norfolk on August 16th, 1943, <laughs> uh, before the Eldridge was ever there or even commissioned. So the ships never crossed paths. Uh, furthermore, the Eldridge had been launched only two months before the experiment. And you'd think that if it was hosting Albert Einstein and the most amazing experiment in history, Somebody would have known about it, right? Well, speaking of uh, the experiment, Andy, there's some discrepancies with how it's portrayed. In early renditions of this story, they simply, you know, they say they simply rendered the USS Eldridge invisible. But, you know, as time goes on, other accounts say they teleported. Which, you know, honestly, the back and forth with the story for some skeptics is enough to make any shred of validity that this story had that it that it even had left vanish, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That 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 shred of that little shred of validity is gonna go invisible. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of shreds of credibility, George W. Hoover, the then commander of the Office of Naval Research, 
later in life recanted the entire story as a big old hoax. I guess I shouldn't say recanted. He just declared it a big old hoax. Hoover rarely talked about the Philadelphia experiment later in his life as he felt it had gotten completely out of hand and is quoted as saying there's, quote, absolutely nothing to it. Now, the reason the Varro Company and the ONR were so into this story and many others like it is this. You have to remember that this was in the 40s and 50s, and many people, including scientists and military personnel, had really yet to make up their minds on UFOs. This was the UFO heyday of sorts, you know? This is 1950s Americana. You got little green men and silver saucers. Um, In fact, UFOs were a fun lunchtime hobby for the Vero company. And then president, uh, the then president of the company was hella into them. So when Varro, uh, when the Varro press got a hold of this weird annotated copy of Jessup's book, he was probably like, whoa, far out, man. This book writing, ha- the, the dude writing these notes is super groovy. Okay. Maybe that's not the, man, okay, maybe that's not the correct lingo for the time. But anyway. This guy, he's he's no egghead, so he hired a local high school student to type up the annotations into legible print and then printed the whole damn book and sent it around to various people, scientists, researchers, the Office of Naval Research, and he wanted to see, hey, is this, this is there any substance to this? Now, let's be clear. We at Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast think it's a real Chad move to put your company name on a printed copy of some random dude's annotated version of a UFO book and then distribute it to a bunch of people. However, Faro's name attached to the book gave it a false sense of credibility because when lay people started reading it, they were like, oh, whoa, Varro is a total reputable research company and their name is on this weird annotated book. There must be some truth to it. So, we've taken a lot of shots at Philly and the Philadelphia Experiment, but just like old Rocco went a full 15 rounds with Apollo Creed and just wouldn't quit, neither will the Philadelphia Experiment. So, is there any truth to this story at all? Well, yeah, kind of, a little bit. Decades later, files were declassified by the U.S. Navy that showed there was indeed secret military testing going on in the fall of 1943. One account comes from a man named Edward Dudgeon. Dudgeon claims to have been in the Navy from 1942 to 1945. In an, in an interview with Jacques F. Vallier, Vallier in a paper titled Anatomy of a Hoax, the Philadelphia Experiment 50 Years Later, published in the Journal of Scientific Exploration in 1994, Dudgeon recalls how the Germans were absolutely butt-fucking the Allied naval forces. Uh, I guess we should be clear. He didn't use the term butt-fucking, though. I added that for flavor. Uh, That's not in the script. I added that for flavor on my own. Butt-fucking is my favorite flavor. It was apparently so bad, this butt-fucking, that the sailors called the Atlantic Ocean the graveyard. Dudgeon says that the military was secretly testing a way to make their ships invisible. Not to the naked eye, but to electromagnetic detection. Dudgeon explains that the Germans weren't using sonar yet during World War II, but instead used magnetic-guided torpedoes. So the military employed multiple tactics, installing screws that made a sound of a different pitch, a device called a hedgehog which fired depth charges at attacking submarines, and degaussing the ships. 
They degaussed the ships by hoisting them up and wrapping the ship in hug cables and then ran high voltages through the cables into the ship to scramble the ship's magnetic signature. The whole operation involved contract workers, civilian sailors, naval sailors, and merchant marine ships uh, would have been nearby. Dudgeon says it's entirely possible that one or more of the Navy sailors said something along the lines of, they're going to make us invisible, and while that's not entirely false... You wouldn't think invisible to torpedoes if you were a regular civilian just hearing this, would you? Now, Dudgeon also explains that the story of the missing sailors as uh, being a bit of a mix-up. The The story goes that two sailors went out drinking late one last one night and started, you know, yapping away about all this secret tech the Navy was doing, so the waitresses told them to leave before they got in trouble. Now... Dudgeon claims to have actually been one of these so-called disappearing sailors. However, there is some debate over the validity of these claims as, you know, they were kind of made after the experiment garnered pop culture status. But hey, who knows? But what about old egghead Einstein? Huh? Is he off the hook? Well, not entirely. In uh, Valier's paper, he uh, describes a, quote, correspondent of mine who used to work at the Explosives Research Office of the Naval Sea Systems Command. End quote, that found a classified file that apparently contained correspondence from the Navy to Albert Einstein regarding his work for them during World War II. The legend of the Philadelphia experiment grew so popular that in, that in 1984, a film about the legend was made. It's titled The Philadelphia Experiment, and it did. Eh, meh. It's, it's B-movie levels. <laughs> a sequel was made in 1993, so they got that, I guess. Um, despite all we've covered regarding the discrepancies in this story, some theorists still believe Carl Allen's take on the topic. But what do you believe, Bunk Funkers? Was the Philadelphia experiment real? Did the military, with the help of Albert Einstein, really unlock the door to teleportation? Or did actual secret military testing um, cause uh, Carlos Allende to teleport to the wrong conclusion? Either way, Bunk Funkers... We have now teleported the whole enchilada on the Philadelphia Experiment straight into your mind tummies. And let's hope that it never vanishes. Yum. Hey, welcome back, Bungfungers. That was our research of the Philadelphia experiment. Andy, are you full of the Philadelphia experiment? I got a full tummy here, Art. I'm full of Philadelphia. I got cheesesteak. I got whiz. I got... Uh, I'm covered in sweats. This beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful sight. You know, I do hope that some Philadelphian bunk funkers out there write into us and let us know how good our <laughs> accents sounded. Yeah. Uh, I know we nailed them. We practiced. We really did. Yeah. Worder. Um, Brussels. You ever been uh, to Philly? You ever been to Philadelphia? Um, yeah, actually, I have to say, uh, I have been to Philadelphia before. And uh, at the Reading Market, uh, I had a delicious Italian sandwich, Art. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Truly. Huh. Uh, not the famous one, no. Not the, what is it, Denix, the, like, pork sandwich with the broccoli oh. rob or whatever. I didn't have that one. Um, 
That's what I'd probably get now if I went, but uh, I did have a great sandwich there. Not a huh. cheesesteak. Not a cheesesteak. You didn't get a cheesesteak. You went to Philadelphia and you didn't get a cheesesteak. I don't know that we did have a cheesesteak the whole time I was there. I don't remember having one. Wow. Uh, but we did eat at a uh, colonial restaurant where the whole idea of the restaurant is that they used like techniques and ingredients. I don't know techniques. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But like they made reproduced dishes that would have been eaten during colonial times in Philadelphia. So I had a uh, venison, uh, like a, a venison, uh, like beef, like beef and noodles, you know, like, but venison and noodles. Yeah, like, like a stroganoff. noodles. Yeah, exactly. Like venison and gravy and and egg noodles, basically. Right. You were stroking off. I was stroking off. Well, you know, I was a teen at the time. <laughs> yeah, plenty of stroking off going on that little family vacation. I know. How Got you one do. of the worst sunburns of my life on that trip. Oh, really? Because after we left Philadelphia, we went to Atlantic City. Oh, baby. <laughs> I got a sunburn, and my parents lost the car in the casino. <laughs> we had to walk all the way home. Oh, Only wow. part of that story is true. Oh, yeah, but the part was that you didn't get a cheesesteak. <laughs> That's true. Um, God damn, Andy, not a lot to dig in on this one, huh? Yeah, uh, you know... We talked about it. I had heard about this. Uh, I had heard about the Philadelphia experiment before, you know, where allegedly a, sh- a U.S. Navy ship disappears uh, while it's parked in the harbor. Um, but geez, when you dig in deeper, kind of just there's not a whole lot there. Oh yeah, I mean, I it's gotta a good say, story. you know, a little disappointed. I'm sorry, Philly. I'm sorry. Uh, just a little disappointed in this one. It's a um, it's a good story, you know. It's I just yes. I'm not I into mean, it. it. I'm gonna be honest. I don't like it. It's boring. Wow, the whole thing. Well, is that in light of what you what you learned during research, or just? Uh, like I mean, it's surface? not even like it. We don't even go in any. De- they're just like yeah, the the ship disappeared and then teleported back, and then like uh, some people started vanishing and getting sick, and there was a couple of them teleported into the hull of the ship, and it's like <laughs> yeah, and then what happened? Did, they, know, did they become like a ship person? And then <laughs> the mail the military just has this like half ship, half person thing, like like some some Thomas the tank engine looking like abomination that just lives in like Area 51 somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, you kind of make a good point. I guess I guess that's true. It's like they it's a good story, but then it's like but you, they never used it. Oh, they figured out how to make a ship invisible, but then never used it again. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no literal reports of any invisibility being used. Like, um, wouldn't we know that by now? One thing that, uh, yeah, you think the military, yeah, you think the military, if they had actually discovered invisibility, would have made very quick use of it or teleportation. Um, Throughout the plethora of wars that happened after World War II. Like, can you imagine being able to use invisibility, uh, like, technology to win the Vietnam War or the Korean War or, you know, all these other wars that fucking uh, came after World War II? 
we wouldn't have used it during the Cold War. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, like this is just <laughs> something to keep in our back pocket for when we really need it. Yeah. Like they wouldn't have <laughs> teleported uh, CIA agents over to the to the Russians to like blow up their own nukes or something. It's like, no, no, Vietnam made more sense than using invisibility. Yeah. Um, one funny thing I read from the uh I think this was the Valle article, which is also linked in the show notes. It's a good one. Is uh, they wrote, presumably such a sudden disappearance would have created an emergency as uh, like 2,000 tons of water rushed to fill the void, resulting in large waves that would have swept through the entire naval yard. <laughs> like, and I was like, oh shit, you're right. If you disappeared a fucking big ass Navy destroyer, Mm-hmm. And then all of a yeah. sudden, there's just this void of water, you know? Yeah, that actually is a really good point uh, and something that I hadn't considered. Um, but a ship dis- displaces quite a lot of water. So, yeah, I guess that would be pretty catastrophic for a, a ship to just instantly disappear. It's not like it just sits on top of the water. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, I mean, the, the way that this story is described is that, like, the, the ship almost does like a like I dream of genie level of like <laughs> teleportation you know like when genie yeah. wrinkles her little nose and then she can blip out and disappear you know what I'm talking yeah. about uh, yeah. like it's like that it's like a snap like all of a sudden it's gone but it's like there'd be a shit ton of water and it would it would crash <laughs> the ship yeah. is sitting in yeah. the water yeah that's <laughs> yeah, I really hadn't considered that, but that's that's kind of a really good point is because it's like uh yeah, there would be the, the whole harbor would be like racked with waves. <laughs> like oh, yeah. it would be it would be and, absolutely uh, destroyed with waves. And, and you know, bunk fuckers don't know this, but we're both championship level wakeboarders and uh jet skiers. <laughs> so uh yeah. We know that harbors are often no wake zones. So, um, yeah. And that, that's and why that's we sleep. Twofold. That's why we sleep. Yes. It's a yeah, no wake zone. Always you're not supposed to, to wake sleep. anybody up who's taking a little yeah. nappy on the dock. But also, you can't cause wakes from your boat. Keep it quiet, dudes. Keep it quiet, dudes. That's beach rules. Beach, beach rules, my bro. Um, yeah, I got to say, like, pretty disappointed in this one. It's all the account of what isn't that wild that one dude can just make a bunch of footnotes in a book in the 50s and then mail it out. And people are just like, holy shit. Oh, fuck. We got to look into this. This guy's guy's know what he's fucking talking about. (laughs) It is pretty interesting, to be honest, that 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 it got so much steam from just this. I mean, it's a strange act. Right. Like it is a strange thing to do, but it's kind of weird that it got so much traction. I mean, it's, it's, it's strange to me that it got that much, that it got that much traction. Like, I mean, what would you do? What would you do if you're, if you're Hoover and you get this book at the ONR with all these notes scrawled in it? I mean, I would probably be like, uh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then that would be, like I would, I would not do anything else. Probably. I mean, yeah. be like, I, all right. I guess. Thanks. I guess maybe what we should say is is like, uh, good on 
these folks for like questioning it and saying, hey, maybe there's something here. We should look into it. Just weird that yeah. it ended up being like uh, a whole thing. You know what I mean? Like it's so strange yeah. that that's how it ended up. You got to remember though the time period. Like people would have been shocked by like, I don't know. This dude was bringing up like scientific subjects in the in a book on UFOs and this, so they're like, oh, oh boy, oh, 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 oh my goodness, yeah, you know. So yeah. it was probably interesting. And, and to be fair, I don't think any of them wanted it to get as out of hand as it did. You know, Hoover famously, <laughs> and like we said in the script, was like didn't like to talk about it because he's like, this got out of hand. This is a bunch of fucking bullshit. <laughs> So yeah, he was probably just kind of like, God damn it. <laughs> um, I should have never done anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's definitely survived um, a long time. And it, I don't know. It's, it's just there's just not much. Yeah, there's not it's a just one here. dude. Little drifter, little Carl Carl Allen, the little uh, drifter man. Yeah. Drifting around, fucking joshing everybody. Yeah. Uh, he could teach Bob Lazar a thing or two, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Bob yeah, Lazar went like... to the uh, Carl Carl Allen school for, uh, for hoaxing. Yeah, these two are kindred spirits for sure. Um, you know... I'm just going to mention that uh, the Eldridge itself uh, got sold to Greece in January of 1951. Oh, really? Yeah. What did Greece need to do with a uh, U.S. destroyer? <laughs> uh, looks like they uh, dismantled it then later in March. <laughs> so I don't know what they were. I don't know what they did with it. <laughs> Grace, what's up? Yo, if you're it's, from if you're from Greece out there, let us hear. Yeah. What did you guys do with that ship? What was up with that? At least on at least on Wikipedia, it says it got sold to Greece on the fifteenth of January in nineteen fifty one, and then it was struck on the twenty sixth of March nineteen fifty one. So, <laughs> don't know what the oh hey and guess was it, there some kind of war in nineteen fifty one in Greece in in Greece? I don't know. Uh, let's see. Da, 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 Is that da, da. when the Great Kalamata Olive War happened? Yeah. <laughs> well, geez, this, uh, I mean, as we mentioned, this ship was, uh, or I think as we read, ship was familiar with the Mediterranean, at least. Right. Uh, it traveled to Casablanca. Let's see. Here's here's a little bit of its service history. This is, uh, I'm just reading this from Wikipedia, so I mean, take that as you will. Between 4th of January 1944 and 9th of May 1945, Eldridge sailed on the vital task of escorting to the Mediterranean Sea men and materials to support Allied operations in North Africa and on into Southern Europe. Uh, nine voyages to deliver convoys safely to uh, Casablanca uh, and other spots. Uh, let's see. Departed New York 28th of May 1945 for service in the Pacific and route to Saipan in July made contact with an underwater object and immediately attacked, but no results were observed, uh, arrived in Okinawa on 7th of August. 
with the end of hostilities a week later, continued to serve as an escort on the on sea routes there until November, uh, and then was out of commission uh, and in reserve on 17th of June, 1946. And then was transferred January 15th, 1951 under the mutual defense assistance act to Greece and served as Leon or maybe Leon. Uh, Leon was decommissioned on the 5th of November, 1992. And on 11th of November, 1999 was sold as scrap to the Piraeus based firm, V&J Scrap Metal Trading LTD. This ship had a long service life, 1992? Hey, Godspeed, USS Eldridge. Jeez. Uh, and interesting, uh, here's how much water it dispa- displaced. Um, 1,240 long tons, just standard. Holy fuck. And if it's fully loaded, 1,620 long tons. So That's a lot of water. Yeah. So... Uh, if it did disappear, that's a lot of water that's got to go somewhere. Oh, yeah. All right. That's um, <laughs> that's my little detour onto the Eldridge. <laughs> well, hey, I know. I appreciate that. That's uh, that's a good insight. It's interesting, you know, how these the ship had a long service life throughout all uh, of World War II. Crazy that it was in service until the 90s. Yeah. wonder what it was doing. Uh, probably well, listening to what? Pearl Jam and wearing a lot well, of flannel. An, well, there's an article on it. Let's Grew see. Hair out. Mainly for patrols in the Eastern Aegean Sea and for cadet officer training. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they use these ships a lot for, like, training exercises out in the Bermuda Triangle and, like... um, Yeah, just to, like, escort stuff a lot. They would do that as well. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it was uh just a long long serving ship in the Greek Navy. Huh. Much longer in the Greek Navy than it was in the US Navy. Um another weird uh little factoid that I also pulled from the article is that this was um they mentioned that this was the kind of tale which, you know, it's an easily digestible tale of science. Yeah. Um, you know, as opposed to, I think this might be actually from Skep- uh, Skeptoid, uh, with, which Handsome Brian Dunning would have written. But um, <laughs> as opposed to most scientific endeavors, which are boring, complicated, or too abstract for a general audience, which I highly relate to as we tried to research um, unified field theory. And I was just like, what the f-? <laughs> like yeah. I even did that in the script. I was like, yeah, unified field theory. It's like Lord of the Rings. You ever seen the Lord of the Rings movie? <laughs> it's like the one ring. Yeah. Me dumb. Don't understand. Yeah. Good. Good call to bring it back to Lord of the Rings. Well, everything for Chad's for Chad's like us. That's more more easily relatable. Yeah, that's more our speed. Yeah, precisely. I don't know. I don't even really think that this is a very fun bar story. <laughs> yeah, I don't the bar told this one at the bar. You'd really get that many. Uh, 
Well, and let's be honest, the part of the story that happens in the bar, kind of boring. Oh, Pretty they, boring. They thought we disappeared because we had to leave the bar quickly. It's like, what the, nobody thinks that. Yeah. How would they misunderstand that? They're like, they're like, yeah, well, you think people getting uh, fused into the hull of a ship is weird? Check this out. We <laughs> two people, yeah. two people disappeared from a bar without paying their tab. It's like it's Ooh. easy to see these kind of mix-ups happen all the time. <laughs> Look, we've all been to a restaurant and a man goes to the bathroom and you don't see him come back to the table. And then days later, you're telling someone else that story and you say, yeah, he got fused in to a car in the parking lot because the car disappeared into another dimension. Did I mention I'm also three years old and I haven't developed object permanence yet? <laughs> when I stop seeing things, I think they disappear. They go away. Where is it? I don't know. Please, Neither do you. Please don't play peekaboo with me. I will get scared mm-hmm. and start crying. Please don't play peekaboo. Uh, <laughs> um, My favorite Pokemon. So I just want to say that the... Eldridge was a cannon class destroyer and there were a few of these uh, a good number of these cannon class destroyers that were produced um, and the last one uh, that got decommissioned was one in the Philippine Navy in March of 2018 so one one of these ships served for even longer than the Eldridge. Wow. I mean, some of the stuff that they did to, um, I I guess I see, you know, we're ragging on it, but I see how the mix-up would happen because they were technically making the ship invisible to torpedoes, um, not to the human eye, but, you know, and the way they went about it probably would have been pretty... Probably a pretty insane sight. I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. I I, I don't know what it looks like to wrap a <laughs> giant fucking ship in huge cables. Like, in my mind, I'm appearing that, like, I'm thinking that, like, yeah, they have this thing wrapped, like, head to toe in cable, and then they just electrify the shit out of it. Um, Dungeon describes the smell of ozone, like, was really stinky and weird and... You know, they're degaussing the ship and um but all that stuff is real. Like you can look up the hedgehog system. Yeah. And um it's you know, it's all real tech. So uh the Eldridge was outfitted with a hedgehog system. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the the actual hedgehog system outfitting does look like it you're adding like a big generator or some kind of transmitter or thingamabob to the ship that would have been like, oh, whoa, what is that? What are they adding? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I can see. I mean, like, I'm looking at this uh, this diagram. And it's like, yeah, they've got the whole thing, like, wrapped in these uh, degaussing cables. Yeah. I mean, like, it would be it would be weird. I mean, it would be a weird thing to see. Is there a real picture of it? Well... I don't know, Andy. I'm yeah, pretty just much kinda, ready to get it to just my kinda looks, There's just not a lot to uh, sink your teeth into here. It just kind of looks like it's got little stripes. Like, they're not... They're, they're huge cables, obviously, but it's not like they're... I don't know. Uh, I was picturing it more like an octopus-type thing. 
Like it looks like yes. a huge octopus, but they're kind of thin. They're not. They're not real thick compared to the ship. So, oh, it actually doesn't even look that weird. Like if I if well, I was walking th- by, I might be like, oh, what are those lines? Oh, there must be some cables <laughs> or something. But I guess if you saw them putting the cables on, maybe it seems weird. Yes, much like the Philadelphia experiment, once you start looking into it, you find that there's really nothing there. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I guess we could get into verdicts. If All you're right, ready. go ahead. Okay, I'll go ahead. Um, do it, dude. Get it. All right, Fucking let me do my, it. Teleport let me, to it. Let me, let me get my bunker scale here uh, so chop, I know chop. exactly where to put this. So, <laughs> I mean... Uh, I mean, I you know, I've been on kind of a streak lately where I'm given a little bit of plausibility even to stuff that I really don't And you believe. have been streaking lately. Yeah, yeah. My underwear are perpetually streaked. But this week, I got to just go straight up case closed with this one. I yeah. do not believe it. And, you know, Carl Allen, I just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I didn't find anything like... There's nothing compelling. It's like there's pretty strong rebuttals to all of Carl Allen's claims, I felt like, in this case. And all the stuff that was said, it's like real easy to tie it back to this is either just a misunderstanding or like this clearly is just made up. I think Carl Allen's just like an eccentric type of person. And, yeah, you know, he. I, I, think, I think you see this sometimes where – People put themselves in situations or they believe a story about a thing that they were involved in that maybe they really weren't involved in at all. Uh, I think this is just one of those situations. So um, yeah. I'm straight up I'm straight up case closed on this one. I'm not Whew. buying it. I, I mean, I agree with that. Um, you know, I, I don't really even know how much Carl Allen believes it as much as I think he just he just has a lot of knowledge about UFO stuff. Um, and was interested in these topics and didn't wouldn't have really had a, like a big outlet to really talk about them. So he wrote into these authors a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that I think he I think he enjoyed the story more than he actually believed the stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of showing my hand here, but bunkfunkers, I don't think this will surprise you, but you know, he knew a lot about UFOs. Like that's like quote unquote, you know what I'm saying? Like he knew a lot about how they operated and stuff. It's like, yeah, as much as anyone knows that. Uh <laughs> like I you know, it's like he's somebody who's affected by the the pop culture and the the media yeah, around it sure. at the time. Um so yeah, I definitely I see what you're saying, like he needed some kind of outlet for that. And so why not? If you know yes. a lot about it, you have to go to the other people who, th- who say they know a lot about it. Right. Cause everyone else is going to be, well, like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I see what you're saying. And I see wiener. Um, <laughs> Futurama. Futurama. Um, I see and I, I'm going to echo your verdict. I am also case closed on this one. I really, um, yeah, pretty disappointed by it. You not, were very disappointed not a lot of, in this one. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. I thought there was more meat to the bones. I mean, maybe if you start bringing it, I know that this one is sometimes tied to the Montauk Project. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I know that other podcasts have done that where they tie in this topic with the Montauk Project. And I can probably kind of see why. 
because I think that Philadelphia experiment has so little story and so little evidence uh, for it that you, it's like, um, you know, it's like a tasty cheesesteak. It's like, you know, you got to throw in a little onion on top and a little cheese and some peppers and whatnot to uh, help balance it out because otherwise there's just not enough meat to uh, carry the whole sandwich. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I definitely know. And, you know, maybe someday Mr. Brunker will have us do the Montauk project, but oh, I got to sure be will. honest with I got to be honest with you. I mean, just if just scratching the surface on that, kind of feel like that's headed in the same direction. Just Whoa, saying. Oh, hey now, Andy. Not not trying to get too hey. far ahead of anything here before Mr. B tells us what to do. You're but. dripping with pre-verdict. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to do the hunch to eat this cheesesteak because I'm wet with pre-verdict. Oh, Jesus. All right. Well, those were our verdicts on the Philadelphia Experiment. Let us know what you think. Use the hashtag. Uh... Uh... Ooh, there's so many to choose from. It's always invisible in Philadelphia. It's always invisible in Philadelphia. Is that what you said? Yeah, that's what I said. It's always invisible in Philadelphia. And uh, email us, MrBunkerPod at gmail.com. Tweet at us or find us on Instagram at MrBunkerPod. Find us on YouTube by searching Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. And... um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, hey, hey, if you do any of the above, we might start sounding the bunker alarm for you. Yeah. We we, we might have we, to go back we, remember, and Remember, it'll be a different sound next time. Yeah, well, different sound every week. Uh, we'll have to, you know, retroactively sound some bunker alarms for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, Andy, we got some time here. Why don't we do, we covered yeah. the Philadelphia experiment. Why don't we do some thought experiments? <laughs> oh, boy. You're going to dig now, into my psyche? Let's dig into your psyche and my psyche. I'll 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 play Ooh, I'll boy. play chess with you. Here's a classic. Okay, all right, Andy. It's called the trolley experiment. You've probably heard of it. Uh, so this thought experiment is there's a trolley, and it's on a track, and mm-hmm. the track is can only go in one direction, and it's only headed right. one way. So the way that the trolley is headed. Uh, there are five people tied up on the trolley track. You know what? Let's reflavor it. There is a DE-173 class destroyer, and it can only teleport in one direction. Okay. And the direction that the harbor that you're going to teleport it to, there are five sailors swimming in the harbor. And if you teleport, if the ship teleports to that harbor, <laughs> they will they will be... The ship will crash into them and they will die. Um, but you have, uh, you have the the Navy's, you have Albert Einstein and the Navy's secret teleportation switching device, where you can switch the path that this uh, this 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 ship is going to take, right. and land in a harbor that will only kill one person. Yeah. So. And there's only those two harbors, the only two places you can go. And um, so the choice is now, what do you do? Do you take one life? Uh, or do you do nothing and let the uh, let the five people die as, as, uh, as the uh, experiment intended? Or do you make the choice to sacrifice one person's life to save the lives of five others? 
Well, I think that the answer here is on its face pretty obvious. You choose the one person. You exercise your discretion and you save four lives. Uh, well, you technically say five lives, but a net of four lives. Um, but I think. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but I think I think we have to ask the, the real gross amount here. of lives that we're getting in total is it's five. Net four. But really, net the four. net profit on lives is four. Net four lives. Um, you still Christ. lose one. You still lose one life. Um, I cannot believe you said that. <laughs> who are these five people? <laughs> What are their stories? And who's the one person? Why does person? that matter? Well, I mean, it's like if... Uh, <laughs> if if they're like five murdering rapists uh, and one innocent grandma with baked cookies, yeah, you're probably going to kill the murdering rapist, right? Right, right. I mean... No, I'm, all look, six people are innocent, everyday humans. Innocent, virtuous individuals. Um, you know... No, no, no. You know nothing about them. They're just innocent... Oh, okay. So as far as I'm aware, then there's no way for me to know there's what There's no what's way happening. for you to know. Um Right. Mhm. Yeah, see, and that's that's where you uh, you take the chance, you know? And I say you have to just assume then that everyone's a murderer and a rapist <laughs> and a terrorist. So you have to let the five the five die. Uh, wow. Okay. You, so have you to, let life. You have to believe. You're kind of doing the is, the omission. You have to believe that everybody is evil if you don't know otherwise. Always assume the absolute worst about people. <laughs> you're going for uh, a real. I mean, you're going for like kind of a different play here. You're like you're kind of banking on the fact that. You're banking on like you're playing the odds here. You're saying that okay, my gross, my gross is five lives, but odds are that amongst those five people, probably like one or two of them is a sociopath or an evil dick or a person, evil person. But chances are that maybe percentage wise, that the one person, if you do end up getting a good person, maybe you're saving like the next president of the United States or something. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I the have next, a- like. Uh, if I if I let the ship You're going for quality over quantity. The, right. If I let the ship kill the five people, there's a better chance that I've averted more possible horror in the future of Earth. Um you know, who knows what those five people would have gone on to do after this. Um whereas <laughs> the other in the other case it's only one person. So one person made it out. You know, Statistically, one person being really bad is less than five people being really bad. So I'm going for the most the most impact. I mean, you could flip it the other way around and say, well, um, you know, I I have also the chance that there were five really virtuous people that were killed and one really awful person. And all the good that those other people would have done is now wiped out forever. Um but I think you can also look at it from this angle and say that human existence is suffering at its core. And I'm really doing those five people a favor by ending their suffering. So in a way, uh, I'm I'm a good person. Um, now, I, I want to talk about this here, Andy. Um, let me yeah. ask you this. 
is the okay. person who mm-hmm. chooses whether the ship crashes into five people or one person. Um, are they a murderer? Now, there's a couple things to think about here. If you let, if you commit omission and say, listen, this ship was headed towards the five people. I'm going to stay out of it. I'm not going to involve myself even in this discussion, even in this, uh, this role in this experiment. Mm-hmm. One could say that, you know, through your own negligence, you murdered five people. But if you choose, and there's another question here is what gives you the right to choose who should live and who should die, Batman? Um, well, I don't know who gave me this clicker. Who's let it giving me the switch? <laughs> Doesn't this matter. The, you you come across the, it. It's just this is the problem with there. the system. Why should a person like me be able to get a hold of this switch? <laughs> That's a flaw in the system. If you choose, as I feel like most people, though, I feel like if you bell curved <laughs> this situation, most people would choose the utilitarian aspect, which is to kill the one person to save the five lives. Even though we're joking. Right, um, right. I think most people would always choose to kill the one person. Are you a murderer if you do that? Uh, I think that I think that in the eyes of the law, you probably are at least somewhat responsible for that person's death. I mean, your defense would probably rest on the circumstances surrounding how you ended up in that situation. Um, and it would probably depend a lot on your... I guess your position, uh, what kind of authority you had, I guess there's two ways to look at it. You could look at it from a legal sense. Do you have a defense here? Which you probably do. Um, I mean, depending on the circumstances, we don't have a lot of information about the setup to this other than this thing is happening. Uh, from a philosophical <laughs> standpoint, are you a murderer? Yeah, probably, because you're going to have that on your conscience forever, I think. You'll never forget that. You yeah, I mean, yes, you're never going to ever. Uh, you made a conscious never gonna decision not, uh, to kill that person. Yeah. Either way, you made a conscious decision to kill people. So I think that you in your heart will think that you're a murderer, even though you'll probably be able to work your way out of it in time because you'll start saying, well, circumstances and yada, yada. And eventually you'll be sitting around telling people like, well, I technically was responsible for that person's death, but I'm not a murderer, even though you'll know deep down you are. Wow. I don't think you'll serve jail time, though. I mean, there's a (laughs) ship floating through a wormhole. I mean, what are you going to I mean, what what would this court case look like? Surely the people doing the experiment, whoever set this up, that that there were supposed to be five people that get killed and you figured out a way to make one person die. Surely the people designing this experiment are going to be the ones that go to jail. You might have to That's do community true. service. You might have to wear an ankle bracelet. I don't know. Yeah. Not a legal you might scholar. get some manslaughter. But uh, manslaughter, you know, the greatest Einstein. I think it's Einstein doing this one. Oh, manslaughter. Yeah. It was the follow up to Mansers. Yeah. Manslaughters. (laughs) Man. All about the all about the manliest killers in history. Genghis Khan. I can actually see that. Um, I think that this was a prank set up by Einstein to punk your ass. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, dude's uh, Chad slash Egghead. Totally neutral to us. Well, that was a fun little thought experiment, Andy. What do you say? You got one more in you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can think about lots of stuff. <laughs> All right, you still got some brain power left. Here we go. <laughs> this one's called the uh, the Swamp Man, but I'm going to reskin it. I'm going to reflavor it to fit into the Philadelphia experiment. Okay. So, suppose that Carl Allen is out for a walk one day when a bolt of lightning comes down from the sky and completely disintegrates him. Whoa. Poof. Like, he's just Turned gone, to dust. disintegrated. Just like one time... One time, my grandpa, I was like at my grandparents' house, and there was like a crumb on the table. Yeah, and I was sitting at the table with my grandpa, and he just picked up the crumb and like crushed it in between his fingers, and then like looked at me and just said, "It's disintegrated." <laughs> I don't know why I have that memory of my grandpa in my brain, but like it's so fucking weird. Yeah, it's a good memory. So. Carl Allen, just like he crushed this crumb between his fingers. The way you said it, he sounds kind of sad. Um, no, he just like said it like, like, haha, like it's gone. Uh, like it was like, a, I don't know. It was weird. Anywho. Okay. Bolt of lightning comes out of the sky. Disintegrates him. Simultaneously, Andy, a bolt of lightning strikes a uh, naval the 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 ocean next to the harbor okay. and causes a bunch of molecules to spontaneously rearrange into the same pattern that constituted that man a few moments ago that man being Carl Allen now this this harbor allen man has an exact copy of the brain memories patterns of behavior as the real carl allen did and it goes about its day, it works, it interacts, it sends letters to MK Jessup, mm-hmm. it writes annotations in a book, and it otherwise is indistinguishable from the real Carl mm-hmm. Allen. Is, is the harbor man the same person as the disintegrated man? Um... Oh, bunkfuckers, bunkfuckers. Did you hear that sound? That is a sound that you very rarely hear with when it comes to your co-host, Andy. The sound of silence. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> this one this one's, this one, comes to us a little bit from uh, Star Trek as well. The idea of teleportation. If your atoms are, the atoms that you're born with, Andy, are taken apart, disintegrated, essentially murdering you. And reconstituting yeah. you in a different place. Are you still the same person? Yeah. You've been changed on a molecular level. Right. You've been completely dissembled and reassembled. Well, I mean. Yes. Let me. I want to I want to juxtapose those two scenarios, though. I think in the case of teleportation, I'm tempted to say yes. Because look. If I take apart my recliner and I put it in the back of my car and I drive it someplace else and reassemble it, it's still the same chair. You know what I mean? Like I haven't, I took it apart 
All right, I might make some Trekkies angry here. I actually don't know how Star Trek teleportation works. What I'm reading on this paragraph is that uh, it's saying both cases rely on one version of you being created and one disappearing, but is the second version of you still you? So I might be getting, I might be mixing up how Star Trek teleportation works, and I don't want that to cloud your judgment because Star Trek teleportation might work by disassembling you in one spot and then like copying it and reassembling it in another spot, but using different pieces of yeah. matter. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like there's some store of matter in each place and you get dissembled and all of that information is stored right. and then transmitted somewhere else. And it's used to make a copy of you. Basically, are you still the same person? Um, well, here's the thing with this, with this, with this, uh, with this harbor, harbor, Allen. Harbor Allen could walk out of the harbor and see the the dis, the dust from disintegrated, or or are we saying that Carl Allen gets completely vaporized and there's n- he's vaporized, left. baby, he's gone. All right, he's gone. Hey. You look at you trying mm-hmm. to fucking weasel oh, yeah. your way out of the, oh, the yeah. difficult conversations here. No, 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 no. Not with these thought experiments, <laughs> baby. No loopholes um, for you, sir. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna give the I'm gonna give a quintessentially me answer here, Art. Uh, is that the same person? No. Does it matter? No. Because the other person got vaporized, so who gives a crap? For all intents, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> yes, it is the same person. Even though I think at a physiological level, if we strip it down to the bare bones, no, it's not the exact same person. And the same would be true if this uh, matter transporter, uh, of which you speak, where your matter is completely dissembled and put into a store, but your information, all the important aspects of you, is transmitted somewhere else so that a copy could be made. That's not the same person, uh, but it doesn't really matter unless there's another copy of you. And then, oh boy, you know how that's going to end up. You're going to be both of you in the same room and a third person's going to be there with a gun and they're going to have to pick which one to shoot. Oh. Oh, no. And you're going to say, shoot him. He's the real Andy or he's the fake Andy. And then he'll be like, no, shoot him. He's and the then fake I would Andy. S- and I'll be sitting there with my gun, and I'll fucking shoot both of you. So I guess shut up. <laughs> and then you would know it was me because I would be like, you know what? I guess it doesn't really matter. This guy's the same as me. You might as well kill me and get it over with. <laughs> and then you'd be I like, oh, know. well, that's. And then you would shoot me, and then you shoot him. <laughs> yeah, I'd keep no, the clone. You wouldn't keep the clone. <laughs> Nobody wants that. It's still just me. Um, let me read to you. So this was written by uh, that that. Uh, that thought experiment is called the Swamp Man, which could easily be a topic for the show. But um, it was written by Donald Davidson in 1987 as a thought experiment, but um, on like identity. And what Davidson said was that, no, they are not the same person. Mm-hmm. He argues that while they are physically identical and nobody would ever notice the difference, they don't share a casual history and can't be the same. For example, while the Swamp Man a.k.a. Harbor Allen, would remember the friends of the disintegrated man, disintegrated Carl Allen, it never saw them before. And another person saw them, 
Another person saw them and the Swamp Man just has that person's memories. Mm. Now, there are objections to this idea that the two characters in the story are different. Some argue that the identical minds of the Swamp Man and the original person mean that they are the same person. Others, like philosopher Daniel Dennett, a.k.a. uh, he's taking the Andy Hart approach, argues that the experiment is too far removed from reality to be meaningful. Yeah, there you go. You know, I guess I, I guess I, I guess I can see those arguments, and I guess what I kind of said both things, right? That I already said you all did. things, uh, which is truly my style to play every angle, so that no matter what, I can't be wrong. Um, yeah, I think that that makes sense, though. I mean, it's you know, yeah, I was right. Um, Art, I've got a thought experiment for you uh, now. Uh, so, oh wow! Let's just go on Instagram <laughs> and browse for thoughts. That's my thought experiment, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Andy, we'll have uh, yeah, to do that on our for own private. time. Um, <laughs> yep, that's right. Um, well, those were our thought experiments. If you uh, if you really want us to look into any others, um, and you know what, you know, don't get don't get caught up in those Instagram thoughts. Okay, they all Photoshop their stuff. They all take pictures at the best angles with good lighting. And just love yourselves out there, bunk funkers. All right, you don't you don't need to be some kind of giant destroyer teleporting you know you could be a regular ship that just travels to casablanca that's yeah, perfectly we're okay fine for us i mean keep yourselves pure we'll accept you yeah you don't no. need to be degaussed to be no. a bunk funker you just we need like to be a bunk, bunk funkers funker. we like our bunk funkers as magnetic as possible yeah <laughs> so we can always locate them we're always watching you, bunk funkers. Um, you know, Andy, do you have any last words on this? Uh, um, the this. Uh, this um, hey, here? I just uh, no. I think my final my final words just disappeared, vanished without a trace. <laughs> Fitting. Uh, well, for not the titular Mr. Bunker, but for my shaggy dog co-host. <laughs> Andy Hart. Okay. I'm Art Stones. <laughs> okay. I'm Art Stones. And that was the whole enchilada. Philophia. Yo, Adrian. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag 
but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.